Drill music, a form of hip-hop that originated in Chicago in the late noughties, has become increasingly popular and prevalent in the UK, particularly in London, in the last decade. But UK authorities have been swift to associate the style with gang violence, leading to numerous songs being removed from social media platforms and individual artists being prohibited from uploading or even performing certain songs. Colette Allen is in the chair as we discuss the motives behind this de facto criminalization of a musical style on the Media Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. In this episode, we will be looking at the criminalization of drill music and the implications on freedom of expression. We are joined by Dr. Lambros Fitzis, a lecturer in criminology at the University of Brighton, who focuses on the criminalization of black music subcultures and police racism. Lambros has served as an expert witness in murder trial cases that involve drill lyrics. He is also the co-author of two forthcoming books, Policing the Pandemic, How Public Health Becomes Public Order, and The Public and Their Platforms. Hello, Lambros, thank you for joining us. Hello to you all, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. And of course, we're also joined by Tom Bennett and Paul Wragg of City and Leeds Law Schools, respectively. Hi, both. Hello. Hi, Colette. And I'm Colette. I've jumped over from Newscast because I thought this was going to be a great discussion and I didn't want to miss out. Drill is a grassroots urban music genre that depicts the harsh reality of life in London's social housing states. It is inspired by the sound of the impoverished suburbs of Chicago, and it gets its name from the drilling, distorted rhythmic structure and graphic lyrical content. It functions as a culturally and politically conscious voice that broadcasts the patterns of inequality and social exclusion that disproportionately affect young Black Britons. Its makers are protected by the right to freedom of expression, a cornerstone of modern democratic society that protects academics, journalists and musicians from censorship when their speech challenges those in power. That, at least, is the opinion of those on this podcast. The Metropolitan Police and Crown Prosecution Service takes a different view. Drill artists, and before them their grime predecessors, before MCs like Stormzy, Skepta and Giggs made grime mainstream, are blamed for inciting knife crime and gang violence in London and other major UK cities. Drill videos on YouTube have been used as evidence in criminal trials to link defendants together and bring convictions against individuals identified without any proof that the targeted videos were linked to specific acts of violence. Criminal behaviour orders, or CBOs, can prevent video participants from associating with certain people, entering designated areas, wearing hoods, or using social media. CBOs have also been used to require artists to inform the police 24 hours before they publish drill tracks and 48 hours before they intend to perform live. If artists fail to adhere to these instructions in the CBO, they can be fined and jailed. These major restrictions on a person's autonomy are justified by an assumption that they are necessary to prevent further crime, but they are also very genre-specific. Lambros, I want to turn to you to start with. When Mick Jagger sang, I'll stick a knife right down your throat in Midnight Rambler, the Rolling Stones weren't accused of inciting violence or gang membership. What's the difference here? Okay, well, I I guess a quick and sharp answer um, would be that the difference between the Stones and, and drill rappers is one of selectivity and double standards, if not outright hypocrisy. Um, But I guess I would like to, if I may, set before us a broader uh, canvas for our discussion by raising three important and related points that I I, I think are not really afforded adequate coverage um, in conventional or mainstream portraits of of the matter. Now, the first of those um, has to do with the denigration of, of drill music as an art form. 
by viewing it almost ex exclusively through a law enforcement context. So, so to contrast that with Mick Jagger, for example, his words are interpreted as lyrics set to music, not as evidence of criminal intent. But the same rule, however, is not applied to, to drill, suggesting that it is perhaps too vulgar and too realistic to count as artistic, fictional uh, or intellectual production. So I guess in one fell swoop, drill music is automatically denied the status of art and it is pursued solely as evidence of criminal wrongdoing and very often as an autobiographical confession that is wrapped or rhymed over a, a rhythmic beat. And in so doing, the, the, the literary and fictional element of, of drill is mistaken for the literal and factual uh, in, intentions of, of wrongdoing, so that the police, prosecutors and judges can, and indeed, and indeed do, rely on the prejudicial impact that such content may have on the jury, rather than on their admissibility as evidence, unless, of course, they are accurately interpreted in the context of uh, the, the artistic conventions of drill. Um, and what's important here is, is, of course, upholding high standards of evidence, too, which is, which is actually the second point I wanted to raise, which is that this is as much about defending drill as an art form, whether we like it or not, that, that is just a matter of taste, as it is about ensuring that we rely on concrete evidence that is rigorously examined when, when deciding to bring charges. So call it you know, procedural fairness, if you like. And I guess, technically speaking, the reason why that's important is because there are actual legal routes to excluding drill lyrics from evidence. Um, perhaps the three of you are, are, you know, more have more expertise on this, but I'm thinking here of, you know, exercising residual exclusionary discretion under uh, Section 78 of PACE 1984, for instance, or using Article 10 of the Human Rights Act on freedom of expression. And the third and perhaps most important um, issue, I guess, is that the prejudicial impact and value of drill lyrics overrides its evidential weight. So however attractive or convenient it might be to link what is depicted in the lyrics to any real incident, not only is the link tenuous at best, but the nature of the lyrics as a fictional product of the artistic imagination does not change because of the facts of the case. So the, the, you know, the nature of the lyrics as fictional does not change because, the, because, the fact, because of the very facts of the case. And I think that's a very important point to make. And perhaps more importantly, th th there's also the issue of the selective discrimination towards an incrimination of drill, which has to be seen in the context of racialized connotations that single, single young black people in the music out as a threatening presence in the city. So connecting drill music to gang membership, for example, as prosecutors routinely do, mirroring relevant CPS guidance, can and does have a, a significant prejudicial impact on the framing of any court case that involves rap lyrics, because it implies a connection between rappers and gang-affiliated networks that is actually not supported by concrete uh, empirical evidence. And in so doing, 
such mental associations mistake drill rappers for members of of gang networks that pro promote criminal behavior rather than as music collectives that engage in you know forms of artistic expression and creative imagination so i just wanted to to you know bring those three uh, points to our attention as, as a way of perhaps, you know, foregrounding our discussion. Thank you very much for that, Lambert. And I'm going to come to Tom and Paul in a second to pick up on some of the points that you've just raised. But first of all, I just I want to draw out a little bit more on that idea that this shouldn't be evidence at all, because there's, as some listeners will be aware of, there's case law around how you prove gang membership in a criminal trial. And it's difficult because Obviously, gangs are, exist for criminal purposes. They don't issue out membership cards. You need to look for evidence that can be inferred. Groups that can clearly be linked together as they're seen together in music videos seems like an obvious way to show that these individuals do know each other. Uh, what do you say to, to lawyers who may want to make that case? I mean, okay, f first of all, uh, I think the main issue with with gangs is the very definition, which which is incredibly loose, and essentially it boils down to three things. So, uh, you know, if we look at the official definition of gangs, it implies that you require more than three people who uh, display a name, who have some visible, you know, insignia that can identify them as members of a group, and share a, a physical space. Now, I often joke about this in, in, in my lectures and turn around to my students and, and, see, and say to them, well, I can see at least three of you wearing lanyards, which bear the insignia of the University of Brighton, and you seem to know each other and call each other by particular names, and you find yourselves in the very same physical space. Now, is that a gang? What about conference goers? Are conference goers gangs? You know, and, and, and although this is, of course, a very exaggerated and, you know, intentionally provocative way of posing this issue, it, 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 we can't pretend that the definitions that we have are not already loaded with prejudice and are not wanting. Because if we start with such a broad and loose definition of a gang, um, a gang can be anything that you want it to be. Now, on the issue of using, um, I guess, drill or rap, uh, rap videos on trials to 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 prove gang membership. Um, it, it's a bit of a slippery slope because what would you rely on to do that, and how, in, and and who's going to do the the you know the interpretation? Who's called in as an expert to do the interpretation of what counts as gang insignia or gang signs or gang belonging? Is a name enough? So, for example. If two or three more people know each other and call each other by name, why do we assume that they're in a gang rather than they perhaps grew, you know, grew up together and find themselves in the same community in the same environment? And the problem, of course, is that we don't allow for that possibility because just the very idea of belonging in the same group, which might include people who are engaged in criminal activities, we automatically think that that entire community is involved in gangs. Anyone who knows a gang member is a gang member. And that's how the joint enterprise law essentially works. Which again, the problem with such tactics is that they are precisely that, they are tactics. They do not really rely on any concrete evidence. They rely on 
hugely problematic assumptions about the, the very groups that we are that we are talking about. So they're very useful prosecutorial tools, right? They do the job in that in that sense. But if we investigate them a little bit, you know, the evidential weights that we rely on to make those assumptions, um, I think starts to crumble, honestly. And especially if we if we reverse that and say, well, would we use the same with any other art form or with any other group of, of people? So I guess what, what, what I'm trying to say goes back to the idea of the selectivity of it all mm. and how there's, you know, we assume that the tools that we have in order to bring charges are reliable, fair, just, and that they rely on concrete evidence. If you don't have concrete evidence to bring charges, you don't have concrete evidence to bring charges. Yeah. You know, th this is, of course, entirely problematic because it, it's almost a, an implicit acknowledgement that we don't actually rely on, on, on tangible evidence to bring charges and that we, you know, we, we rely on emotive, tenuous, prejudicial assumptions about those who we want to charge with uh, with wrongdoing in order to bring those charges. Thank you, Lambros, for that wonderful insight. Tom, I'm going to bring you in because I want to return to the freedom of expression element to this. We've seen a lot of drill music videos being taken down off YouTube over the past few years at the request of the Metropolitan Police. How does this fit with a broader history of censorship? Um, well, if anything, I think actually you know the, the the situation is is worse than that um according to a report a very recent report in the new york times which is based on a freedom of information act request in 2020 youtube removed over 300 music videos um at the request of the metropolitan police um so it's there's clearly a very widespread fear uh, that music is indicative uh, of violent behavior um, and that it may incite violent behavior. And I think it's absolutely right that we should try to determine what exactly is at the root of that fear. Is it based on clear evidence that drill music is a widely used code by gang members to start attacking one another and issuing instructions as if you were sending out you know, military orders? Or is there, as seems far more likely, uh, a, a, an element of irrational, racialized fear um, of, of a particular demographic? Um, I think that... Lambros hits on a really important point when he says that drill musicians are being, in essence, robbed of the status of artists. Um, because if you listen to drill music, and heck, it's it's not my thing, right? I and I would I would not typically choose to listen to drill music, but I recognise talent when I hear it. There's enough music in my background all my legal days for me to be able to do that. Um, and much of this music is the product of serious talent 
and effort, hard work. Um, the way that the lyrics fit together is it's not just any random teenager getting their phone out and yelling at it. These are sophisticated rhymes and half rhymes. The, uh, uh, the structure of the lines, the tempo is thought through and adjusted um, depending on the, the, the meaning that uh, the artist is trying to convey. And then when you look at the musical accompaniments, which are often quite minimalist, producing a minimalist backing track is still difficult. Um, there's a lot of thought that goes into the placement of the beats and the, 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 the melody of the bass line and any other instruments that are in there providing texture. There's a lot of thought goes into it. Now, this leads me to really to, to two thoughts and only one of them can be right, that, that, that the authorities must be having. Um, either um, they, they take the view that uh, gangs in London, criminal gangs, are largely comprised of extraordinarily talented musicians. Or, as Lambros puts it, um, they are not, the, the authorities are simply not considering the, this material art at all. Because if you did stop to consider it art for a moment, you would realize it is not the sort of art that anybody can just put together, you know, in, in 10 minutes. Just this, this is often sophisticated work. Um, so I think that just entirely supports what, what Lambros is saying. Um, and it, it is deeply troubling that as a genre, uh, drill music is attracting quite this degree of censorship. Paul, do you want to comment on anything you've said already? Well, I, first of all, I want to thank Lambros for um, his very powerful and um, eloquent um, uh, introduction to these issues. I mean, this isn't something that I was aware of until uh, until you suggested this um, last week, um, Colette. And I think this is. Um, I'm actually quite shocked by what I've uh, what I've heard uh, today. All those all those principles that we talk about on the show regularly about free speech and its importance as a safety valve uh, to allow people to express themselves. Uh, the distinctions that we make between words and actions, and how uh, words should be allowed where actions uh, wouldn't be. All these, all these fancy principles just go straight out the window, don't they? Um, instead, we've got uh, the state. Probably, uh, I suspect there's a cultural pressure here as well that uh, newspapers have uh, liked to whip up the authorities into a bit of a frenzy over the latest moral panic, and here is a moral panic uh, that plays right into the hands of certain newspapers who don't need to be mentioned. The Daily Mail. And so um, it plays straight into their hands. Here is here is something that is corrupting youth. Uh, it needs to be stamped out. But 
um, as as Tom and as Lambros have put it, um, this is just entirely flawed thinking. Yeah, and there's a, there's a real failure to grasp alongside the failure to grasp the artistic nature of drill music. There's a failure to grasp the political significance of the lyrics. Yeah. Um, now I'm not going to sit here and say that every single piece of drill music that is ever produced is in effect a political manifesto. It's not, but there are but it numerous examples. No, exactly. There are, a there are numerous examples of drill music that is overtly, expressly aimed at getting across a political message, and b much drill music, even if that is not express, is reflective of genuine social realities that call to mind real political issues. If uh, an artist is talking about their experiences of being attacked in prison, that's a politically important issue. If they're talking about the fact that they grew up on a housing estate where nobody had enough to eat and there are armed gang members on the street corners, that is a politically relevant issue because it speaks to the uh, the context within which people are actually living their everyday lives. Now, this is being, I think, completely lost. Certainly it's lost on the authorities um, who are often, really you would think, you know, the political authorities would, would be the ones who should be listening to this music and reacting pro, reacting positively to the messages in it and thinking what can we do to improve the lives of people in situations where we can tell from the lyrics that they're putting out there their lives are not uh, as they would wish yeah. well um but that is not the response and it is it is seldom the response of uh, powerful people when truth is spoken to them to accept that truth and do something about its negative consequences. Um, and, and insofar as you know, there is a pattern of um, silencing rather than addressing, um, uh, this, this, this fits into it. Yeah. So, uh, listen, the, the other thing that I'm surprised no one has mentioned yet in the course, and probably because they're not aware of this, but at some point, some bright spot's going to say, well, this is a purely artistic expression. And Strasbourg, uh, under Article 10, uh, treats artistic expression as being of lesser value than political expression. That'll come up at some at some point, and therefore we don't need to be quite as concerned about about the safeguards uh, as we may be. But there, it just strikes me as going back to Lambros's point about hypocrisy. It strikes me there's a few points of comparison here for the purposes of uh, hypocrisy. One is where we have, and Tom, I know you're going to mention this, but I'm going to get in first. <laughs> One of the points of comparison is politicians who use the language of, of violence, uh, apparently without um, consequence. Yeah. Uh, Nigel Farage, when he thought that Brexit wasn't going to go through, said he was going to pick up a rifle and head for the front lines. Nothing happened there. Um the uh, and and there are other points of comparison that we can make as well. We can make comparisons with works of literature which have uh, provoked uh, violence. Um, w- 
for example, uh, the Satanic uh, Verses or the depictions of Muhammad by Jillens Postern, uh, or even the Bible. I mean, sh- the Bible has killed more people than anything else. You're absolutely right, Paul. Um, you know, it's it's there's actually um, uh, a, a, a drill artist, um, I believe his name is Drill Minister, who sets out to expose some of these political hypocrisies. And there's at least one uh, song that he does where he quotes in it the violent lines spoken by predominantly white British politicians. Now, it was it's not that long ago that former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, spoke publicly about a desire to cut Theresa May, former Prime Minister, into little pieces and put her in his freezer. Now, is anyone seriously going to tell me that if that appeared spoken by a young black man on a drill video filmed in Brixton, that that wouldn't catch the attention of the authorities and be subject to some sort of investigation and probably YouTube deletion, maybe followed by a criminal behavior order banning the person from mentioning Theresa May for 10 years. You know, this this is what would happen, right? Um, nobody in circles of power is remotely worried when a middle-class, wealthy, powerful, white person wearing a suit says something violent. It is immediately taken, oh, well, that can't be taken seriously. That's just intended as a bit of hyperbole, or that's just a joke, right? Irrespective of the the level of violence that might be implied in the the content. Um, But you have a talented young black musician says something that sounds violent in the context of a song, which should be purely artistic, and suddenly that's cause for alarm. Yeah, there, there, there is obviously, when one considers it at a macro level, a racial element to to this, a, a very serious one. I think the, the main thing that you know, comes out of that is that drill is less about inspiring violence and more about providing a narrative of lives defined by violence. Yes. And I, I want to bring Lambros in here with the, because um, I know you've researched a lot, the history of, of racial, politicizing black narratives in this way and reading violence where there isn't. Um, Lambros, could you perhaps give us a bit of detail on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I would also like to respond to some of the things that Paul and, and, and Tom said, um, uh, if if I may, I'll, I'll I'll try and link them all together because because I think um, I think it's important to raise those issues. I mean, in in relation to um, I suppose that you know the gang narratives that we hear so often, one thing we should really um, be aware of is that drill lyrics are lyrics. Uh, in in other words, they are whether we like it or not, and no matter how autobiographical they might be, it is a fig- fictive uh, and uh, you know fictive performance and it is intentionally more often than not exaggerated to create you know larger than life personas and narrators um who who indeed you know express themselves in very violent ways but that is conscious and often that is done because it actually sells and there's a very, very important and, and recently published book that, that deals with that 
um, issue very, very sensitively, and that's Forrest Stewart's The Ballad of the Bullet. And what Stewart really shows very carefully in his book is precisely how those narratives are being deployed as an escape from poverty and social inequality precisely because they sell. But we detach those things from each other. So the things that an a music label finds attractive because it sells records is glorified in the marketplace, but it is derided in, in, you know, in other aspects of our society and culture. And what is equally important there to do, which I've seen happen in court as well, is that the narrator is, conf is confused and conflated with the artist, which again, we wouldn't do in any other artistic genre. In other words, we take rap lyrics and the stories that are told in them as literal description, which even if they match realities, we do not even entertain the idea that these could be, um, you know, essentially works of, of literary narrative. So, so, so I think that's a very important um, point. Um, similarly to that, um, I guess what is equally important is that by, by painting drill automatically as little more than, you know, the soundtrack to gang membership and violent crime, we forget, you know, that, that a lot of people, most people listen to it for the sheer sonic pleasure of it. So that's why people listen to drill. Um, and, and another point, again, would be that all of this would really be completely unthinkable if it was applied to any other form of creative ex expression or, 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 or work of the artistic um, imagination. And I guess what I'm trying to really say here is that, that it is important um, from an ethical and, and purely, I guess, legal point of view to just make sure that we uphold higher standards of evidence that we currently have. So I, I, I mentioned that earlier, but I think we really need to return to this, albeit briefly. So if the, the, the new CPS guidance um, has a section called gangs, drill and social media, and what that does is that it links those three things together as if there is evidence to link those three things together. The sad reality is there isn't. So in doing so, a link is automatically assumed that is actually not there in the evidence, which then raises the question of what kind of justice system do we have which makes those assumptions, and those assumptions inform how the prosecution builds its case. I think that's an incredibly serious thing to point out. And last but not least, on the question of violence, what is equally important to bear in mind I, at least in my view, is that is the violence that is not spoken about, the violence that is ignored, the violence that is normalized and legitimized. Um, for example, bad governance can be violent, as we've seen with, you know, excess deaths from COVID. And we have the Marmot, you know, if that sounds incredibly radical and provocative, we have the Marmot Review, which points to precisely bad governance as one of, of, of key, some key factors in you know, preventing avoidable deaths in the thousands by COVID. But you know, we don't serve the PM with a CBO or a gang injunction because that somehow, that we don't, that somehow thousands and thousands of preventable deaths due to political indecision and dithering somehow is not seen as violent. 
Now, I think that's a very, very serious thing to point out because it's, it is very rarely discussed in that light. Or one could think of Grenfell and so on and so forth. Or one could think of, of Trump. We are, you know, we are satisfied with the idea that, oh, you know, he will probably be impeached. But that's not, that's not the same as, you know, he won't be served a gang injunction. He won't be seen as a, uh, or degraded as a demonic individual who, you know, creates and incites violence and, and so on and so forth. And I think that is important too. Although, of course, he is seen as a political villain of sorts somehow the convictions do not stick the same way. There isn't the same reaction to Trump inciting violence as there is to someone who is a drill rapper and is, is accused of inciting uh, violence. And to, to just tie all of that up and respond to, to the question that you actually asked, Colette, and sorry for going on about this, um, the, the, the prehistory of, of the policing of, of Black music genres um, can be traced back to um, the, you know, the era of colonial slavery, which equally coincides with the, the, the roots of uh, the colonial roots of policing itself, in that the very first colonial militias in the Caribbean, particularly in the Caribbean, but also in the Indian subcontinent and Africa too, um, were designed to police uh, the, the expression of slaves out of fear of insurrection. And that expression came in the form of drumming and dancing. So essentially, we had overseers and slave patrols and colonial militias um, formed precisely in order to uh, you know, restrict, monitor, target, and, and suppress the expression of, or rather the potential of, the insurrectionary potential of, uh, you know, music, drumming, and and dancing. So those two things are not distinct. Why they are, are they not distinct? Because if you have, um, you know, the formation of of of, um, of a force which which is designed to preserve, I guess, the interest of the planters and the plantocrats in the, in in the Caribbean, and that then is transported in a metropolitan setting. Um, the, the, the logic, the historical mission, function, and logic of that police force doesn't change, which means that its its suspects don't change. Which means that if historically black expression is seen as problematic, dangerous, and threatening, that will not stop um, miraculously unless the model of policing and the logic and the philosophy of policing behind it changes too. Or to put it, you know, in the language of, of, of rap and in the in the lyrics of of, of Keres One, um, the 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 overseer, the colonial overseer, becomes the police officer, right? And that that can can you know that that can be historically traced to that. But I think Keres One's formulation is probably the best. Uh, you know, brief take on 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 police historiography than than exists, uh, and and he does that actually in a miraculous manner by pronouncing the word overseer so fast that it actually becomes officer. If you say overseer, 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 very fast, it it almost becomes officer, and he does that intentionally, precisely to draw 
uh, you know, comparisons between, um, you know, the colonial roots of policing and indeed its, its, its afterlives and its legacy um, today. So, you know, before drill, there was uh, grime that was, that was primarily policed, although not so, not so much prosecuted um, in, in court. And then before that, uh, there was garage, and then before garage, there was all all the all the different styles of um, Jamaican sound system culture, um, and then and then before that, in, in in different places, not so much in 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 Britain, there was the policing of, of of jazz, and then before that, the blues, and before the blues, of course, there were you know the songs and the drumming and the dancing forms of expression that, uh, that the enslaved engaged in. So you see that historical continuity, both in the history of, I guess, the suppression of, of black music expression, as well as the, the, the history and the prehistory of, uh, of, of policing uh, itself. I think that lyric really shows just how insightful these verses are, that officer's lyric that you use as an example. Thank you for, for telling us about that. Um, I just wanted to, you talk about how we move between cycles of different genres. What happened with, say, grime, which only very recently stopped being mm -hmm. criminalised in, in the way that drill is today? Is there something that we can learn from that going forward? Is it about making it mainstream? Is it about making more white people listening to it that suddenly takes away the sting? Well, that's interesting. I mean, white, white people are already listening to Drill. It's, it's immensely popular. Uh, I, I mean, Spotify advertises Drill playlists, right? So it is already mainstream. I guess the difference is that with, with, with Grime um, is that there was sufficient political will and a very strong case made to, uh, to end its discriminatory suppression because there was a very long um reaction from from fans and musicians and and, and a lot of campaigning before Sadiq Khan uh, decided to scrap one bureaucratic form of policing which was called the, the form 696 which essentially uh, was monitoring um and 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 regulating whether grime could indeed be played or not in in clubs and that was scrapped in 2016 so it, it, it took political will uh, in order to do that, but also the recognition that grime was contributing to the nighttime economy. And in fact, that was Sadiq Khan's argument then. The argument was not so much that we have the discriminatory suppression of a black music genre, but that this affects, this adversely affects the nighttime economy. Now, a similar argument could be made about drill because it is successful, because it is popular, because people do consume it. I guess the fundamental difference is, and we must not overlook that, and I certainly am not, is, is that drill is much more unpalatable than grime ever was, in the sense that it is way more explicitly violent in its lyrics to, to, to be able to inspire any such campaign to say, actually, this is unacceptable, we really need to stop doing this. And for the reasons that we've discussed earlier, it's it's incredibly convenient um, as a as, as a genre, be, precisely because it, it it can translate uh, in, into evidence so neatly in court.
So that, that's a huge advantage to any prosecutorial strategy. And it's quite surprising um, to see how fast that moved, how that became really, really standard practice in, in the space of just a couple of years. I mean, since, since I first published about this, I was amazed to actually see how entrenched this practice is. Even when I've given evidence in court, there were two or three other cases the same day using drill lyrics as, as, as evidence. Um, so so that, that's quite remarkable. So I guess, you know, it's not just the, 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 the commercial appeal and the popularity, but it, it, you know, it is also the issue of, of its aesthetics being, you know, unashamedly and openly violent. That's what makes drill drill, by the way. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be drill. It would be something else. Um, and this is not to deny or condone it, but to say that this is what it is based on in the same way that a Quentin Tarantino film is unthinkable without, you know, blood, right? Um, but I, I think it's also important not to overlook how useful, uh, you know, drill is as, um, as something that can be relied on um, you yeah. know, in, in, in court, b b because it does, you know, for, for and again, I would I would draw draw us back to the CPS guidance, which which I think is is deeply um, deeply problematic. Yeah, there's um there's one thing that you mentioned in that, which is the the promotion event risk assessment form six nine six, which I I just want I think it's a great example of how racialized the policing of this genre is, and I just yeah. want to tell listeners a little bit more about it. So the the original form, which was launched by the Metropolitan Police in two thousand and eight with the aim of identifying and minimising serious violence at proposed events. It requested details of the music style to be played and performed and list only Bashman, R&B and Garage as examples. These are primarily performed by Black artists. Um, and it, it also required promoters to specify the, quote, target audience and, quote, makeup of patrons. So it was the discriminatory language of this dis specifically targeted music events primarily performed and attended by Black Britons. And that's what kind of prompted Sadiq Khan's removal of it in 2017. So any listeners in doubt that this um, is highly racialized can, can use that form as an example. I want to turn back to something that Paul said before, um, and that's that an, an argument that you think is due to be made is that this is an artistic form over a political form of speech. And so it, there's there's less safeguards uh, for it. What do you mean by that? Can you draw out a little bit more um, about that point? Yeah, so what I was referring to there is the uh, apparent uh, lesser standard of review that the uh, European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg uh, applies or seems to apply to interference in, interferences with artistic expression compared to interferences with political expression. Um, so there are several examples, and they, they typically involve prov provocative forms of art, which uh, attacks uh, the sense of uh, community morality or attacks uh, the um, uh, religion. Um, there are a number of cases in which uh, the European Court of Human Rights has refused to declare such interferences with uh, that sort of speech um, uh, to be um, 
and unlawful interference with Article 10 rights to freedom of expression. And the inference that's often drawn by commentators is because is that this is because um, the Strasbourg court values political expression more than it values artistic expression. So if um, that line of thinking was to be picked up uh, in the UK, um, to someone who said, well, you know, by, by denying uh, these musicians um, their opportunity to publish their videos or actually denying them their freedom of speech, someone might say in return, well, of course, artistic speech is treated differently to political speech. I think maybe that's you know, a nice way to, to end this podcast is, do you think there is a legal battle to be had here? Do you think there is a space for a drill artist to say, you know, my freedom of speech is is being um, inhibited here and take, you know, the two routes. This could be artistic, it could be political. We've seen in some of the lyrics mentioned today that often political topics are discussed very thoroughly in drill lyrics. Yeah. Would it, would it succeed? How might it go? Okay, well... I think, if I might just... Sorry, Paul. Um, I think it's probably important to set the scene just by saying a little bit about the actual restrictions that are being placed on this. So the two types of orders that seem to be used are gang injunctions um, under the Policing and Crime Act of 2009 and criminal behaviour orders, um, which came in in 2014 in the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act. Um, a criminal behaviour order gets imposed um, only after a person has been convicted of a criminal offence and is, in essence, um, trying to discourage them from doing so again. Um, but it only can be triggered after a criminal offence has been committed. The even more controversial type of order is the gang injunction, dating all the way back to 2009, as I say, um, which is a civil standard of proof injunction that can be sought by the police, can be sought without notice, um, and which can prohibit a person suspected of uh, gang-related activity from doing pretty much anything. Um, and if that injunction, which, as I say, can be imposed without notice being given to... Uh, the party, they must be informed of the injunction once it is placed, but they don't have to be informed um, that the hearing is taking place, that the application's been made. They can simply be slapped with it. And should they violate that injunction, they'll be instantly held in contempt of court and can, as one consequence of contempt of court, be given uh, jail time or suspended sentence or fine, some sort of quasi-criminal punishment. Um, and that has happened to a number of drill artists. But that ability to impose uh, controls that can be extraordinarily broad in their application um, on merely the civil standard of proof without the um, subject of the order necessarily even having the opportunity to contest the application in court because notice does not have to be given um is is it to me is is an extraordinarily stringent restriction on their freedom of expression and at that 
point, you know, that is the context within which an Article 10-based challenge could be made. Uh, you, With that setup being the background, you already have set the scene for um, a case to be made on proportionality grounds, that these restrictions are vastly disproportionate to their intended benefit. Paul? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so the point that I was going to uh, sort of make in terms of free speech is to do really with whether... Uh, these lyrics um, have the degree of specificity that uh, we would require to say this constitutes uh, a threat in, in, under the cr- criminal law that should be um, uh, acted upon by the police. Um, you know, someone could make a, a specific threat to a specific person, and the fact that it's sung rather than said uh, doesn't stop it uh, being a, a threat. But but at the same time, um, if it lacks that specificity, um, and it's said, uh, and it's a sort of general threat against gem- a general sort of group of people, like let's kill all the lawyers or whatever, um, then this should be recognised as a as an important uh, aspect of freedom of speech. And the reason for that, I come back to the point I made earlier, is this idea of a safety valve that people saying they're going to do things uh, and expressing this kind of frustration, even in even in uh, extreme terms, is different, very different from uh, actually acting upon it and, and intending to act upon it. So um, that's the sort of key distinction that we, we need to make in terms of free speech. Mm, I mean, I'm... I wholeheartedly, uh, you know, ag- agree with uh, with all that. It, it, I guess where where I might differ slightly is that I I don't see this as as purely, uh, uh, you know, a freedom of expression issue. I, I, I guess what I'm also concerned of is, you know, the standards of evidence, um, ethical conduct, and and you know, political, civic, and civil rights as well. Because I think those three things are also at stake when it comes to the, uh, you know, discriminatory suppression of, of drill um, music on, on, on criminal, um, um, on criminal trials. I don't think it's purely a freedom of of, of speech um, issue. I think those those uh, three uh, other issues are are at play too. What a trial that would be! Wiley versus the Met. I, I did want to ask uh, Lambros a question, if I may. Lambros, it may be that you've answered this already, but one of the things I speculated upon um, when I was talking was whether the cause of this treatment of, of drill is cultural in the sense of being a sort of moral panic and therefore pressures being placed on the police to, to act swiftly and therefore disproportionately uh, on this, this uh, musical form. But do you agree with that? What What do you think are the are the causes of this prejudicial treatment of drill? I mean, um, I guess the simplest way to answer this would be, you know, to say that this is definitely, you know, evidence of of, of cultural racism, as it were. You know, we're, we're quite accustomed to the idea of racism only. Um, 
being inscribed on on the body and and only uh, I guess seizing upon you know phenotypical or biological difference, but but it also has a cultural dimension too in the sense that. Um, what it does is it marries biology and transports it to, to, to the realm of culture and pathologizes culture as criminogenic or dangerous and threatening. And, and you know, the reason why I drew that historical sort of, uh, uh, you know, portrait um, of, of the prehistory of policing and indeed the, the history of policing against black forms of music expression is precisely because of that. So, you know, the fear of, of the, the fear and the danger is completely rational, but at the same time, it's completely justified because what is being feared is a, you know, is, is the potential of a response to conditions of inequality, right? What's going to happen if we let people speak, you know, speak the, the, the violent reality out? Uh, and and you know one could say that's why it's being suppressed. But th there's also the the, the aesthetic uh, element to it, which is you know well that's you know that's that sonic noise. You know it's not it's not really even music. You know this is just unacceptable on an aesthetic level. Therefore we clamp it down because it is not music. And not only is it not music, but it is also dangerous, threatening, and you know it. An, an unstable presence in, um, I guess, in, 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 you know, in our social, cultural and political environment. In other words, it's something that shouldn't belong. It's something that doesn't belong. You know, it's something that is terribly un-British, as it were. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that cultural element is there. But, but I think it's essentially what I'm trying to say is that it is very much infused by, um, you know, a, a deeply racist um logic i mean that's what informs that selective um i guess that you know that selective discrimination of 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 drill music because if that weren't the case we could draw on on, on other genres and other problematic forms of expression which which we don't so again we're, we're deeply accustomed to the idea and, and see no problem in consuming violence on netflix uh you know on our sofas yeah and and somehow that doesn't enrage us and a lot of you know forms of normalized violence doesn't seem to enrage us but we pick and choose what makes us angry and that's not accidental and it's not it does not just derive from individual genres it, it derives from a reaction to individual genres and i think that's what's yeah. at stake here yeah thank you well i think that brings us close to uh, the close of this session. I want to thank Lambros Fadzis for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lambros, for your wonderful um, insight into this matter. You're very welcome. And I think, you know, even if drill is not for you, I hope that this discussion has raised your awareness and respect for it as an art form. Uh, I want to close up with a quote from Sir Stephen Sedley in Redmond Bay and Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, which is that free speech includes not only the inoffensive, but the irritating, the contentious, the eccentric, the heretical, the unwelcome and the provocative, provided it does not tend to provoke violence. Freedom only to speak inoffensive is not worth having. I think that pretty much sums up exactly what we've been speaking about today. Yeah, thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast and we'll speak to you again soon.